You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, and you can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. All legal podcasts have disclaimers, and this one is no exception. Our hosts today are national security lawyers who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. And I'm Garrett. National Security Law Today is a podcast about national security issues in the news. We provide critical baseline information on national security issues. And I'm Elisa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. While Yvette is out today, we are joined by the chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security Advisory Committee, boy, that was long, and one of our favorite co-hosts, an honorary millennial, Mr. Harvey Rishikoff. It's hard to advise, as you know, but I try my best. And as I think what we've, what we've done over the decades is the committee strives to present nonpartisan information and legal context for the things you hear in the news that may seem mystifying, even if you understand the law. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law, reports, and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, and in the notes to this podcast. At the end of this cast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or at our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. All right. We have had Mr. Ken Weinstein talk about representing individuals before congressional oversight committees, but today we're going to hear from someone who has seen it on the inside. Our guest today is Mika Oyang of the think tank Third Way. Mika has served as the chief of staff to Representative Ann Eshoo. Did I say that right? Anna Eshoo. Anna, Anna Eshoo. <laughs> Uh, and as the defense policy expert to advisor to Senator Kennedy, as the subcommittee staff director on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, or HIPSI, as we'll refer to it, and as a professional staff member on the House Armed Services Committee, and Mika began her career as a legislative assistant in the, op- in the office of Representative Pat Schroeder, from a Democrat from Colorado, where she handled the Congresswoman's Armed Services and Foreign Policy work. Originally, she's from one of my favorite places, Monterey, California, and Mika is also a lawyer who earned her JD from the University of California Hastings College of Law and graduated from Wellesley College. She frequently appears on MSNBC, and her analysis is often solicited by the Wall Street Journal, Politico, Associated Press, and other media outlets. Her writing has appeared in numerous media outlets, including the Washington Post, you may have heard of that, a Roll Call, and Forbes. Miko, welcome. Thank you. All right. We uh, we think that you may be authority on the topic of these committees, and you have uh, really a pretty deep knowledge of the history that spawned them. Uh, recently, the public has watched with dismay as these two committees, HIPSI and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, seem to be operating by different rules of order and different rules of civility, but there really is a basis for this. Can you help us understand that? Yeah, so the House and Senate Intelligence Committees 
have varied in their aggressiveness and partisanship over the years, but there are some historical and structural reasons why the two committees operate very differently. The Senate committee reflects more of the collegiality of the Senate and is a much more bipartisan committee that tries to seek consensus, and there's some historical reasons for that. And the House committee represents the much more rough-and-tumble partisan nature of the House and its structure and history also are reflected in that. Let's talk about the two. There were two separate committees, one on the Senate side and one on the House side. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about those two committees that were formed, I believe, in the late 1970s and sort of what they focused on and what they concluded? Yeah, so the two intelligence committees, unlike some of the other congressional committees, didn't always exist. They're fairly recent additions to Congress's constellation of oversight committees. Um, And they came about in the, as you say, in the 1970s um, after Watergate. And actually what happened is during the break-in at Watergate into the Democratic National Committee headquarters there, um, the public discovered that the CIA or former CIA operatives had been involved in the break-in. And this led to some questions about what the CIA was up to. So one of the directors of the the CIA asked for... um, a report on all kinds of activities that he didn't know about that he thought might be questionable. And this report was presented to him. It was called the so-called Family Jewel. Wow, and that's quite a title. It is. <laughs> and um, and that report was then leaked to a reporter, Seymour Hirsch. And its publication kicked off a huge outcry and great concern that the intelligence agencies were doing all these things that had not been briefed to Congress. Congress had more informal oversight roles of the intelligence committees before that through both the Armed Services and Appropriations Committees, but largely it was a very collegial, quiet, sleepy set of oversight. But with the publication of this, you might call it a dossier, of uh, intelligence information, people felt like, oh, the committees were, Congress was not really doing their job of keeping up to speed on what the agencies were up to, and that People felt like maybe they had gone too far. Um, So they formed, there were two committees formed, one on the House side, one on the Senate side, made up of members of Congress, these special investigative committees, not like legislative committees, um, to look into these things. One on the Senate side, operated by Senator Frank Church from Idaho, um, which is the one that we most frequently hear about in terms of its oversight and its report. Um, and then the other in the House side, which went through a series of oversight and leadership changes until finally um, it was headed by Otis Pike, and it's known as the Pike Commission. And these two committees were tasked at looking into these intelligence activities, but the two committees went about their business actually very differently, which may seem like history repeating when you look at the two committees today. Um, The church committee, Frank Church had been a former intelligence officer uh, during World War II and so had some understanding of the way the professionalist worked and the relationship with work. He had some very, very high quality attorneys who worked for him on that committee um, and they put together a very thorough report and worked in a very bipartisan way with the intelligence agencies to try and figure out what's going on, produce a thorough report and get the intelligence agencies 
back and forth about exactly what they were going to release and not release. Took a little bit longer, but the report was very well respected and is available online for those people who are interested in it. Set aside a few weeks to read it. It's quite extensive. Um, (laughs) The Pike Committee, on the other hand, um, Otis Pike was much more eager to get the information out there and so was prepared to rush forward with the Pike investigation without the permission of the intelligence agencies to go and through the back and forth of sort of keeping back the things that they thought were too sensitive. And that committee, right, the Democrats at that time far outnumbered the Republicans both in the House, and then that partisan split was reflected in the Pike Commission itself. So from the beginning, the House committee had this reputation among the intelligence agencies for being less protective of information and much more confrontational and adversarial with the intelligence agencies. But then the information that they turned over was so, so upsetting to the American people, they thought that they wanted to make more permanent oversight of the intelligence agencies. So under Tip O'Neill, in the late 70s, um, the House moved to establish the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and the Senate did the same. And if I could pause for just a moment, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that is Tip O'Neill is remembered for is consensus building, being friendly, socializing a lot with other members in order to develop relationships that could be later leveraged to develop consensus. That's right. Um, Tip O'Neill was a big believer in letting the process work its way through. The committee chairs were far more empowered at that time. He focused on making sure the chamber was working well and kept the trains running on time, but felt like just because a bill came to the floor, it didn't mean that people had to vote for it, but it was leadership's job to persuade people to vote for it So, um, and recognize that all the members were independent actors. When the, this particular piece of legislation to create this committee came forward, he was very concerned that those people who were against it or who were skeptical were concerned that this committee might become too politicized. So Tip O'Neill promised that They would appoint people to this committee who would be bipartisan, who would be consensus builders. And the the people that he appointed at the beginning of the committee's existence were that. And the reason that it's a select committee is that it is the Speaker of the House for the majority party and the minority leader for the minority party who get to appoint the members of the committee. It's not like any of the other committees where people can be voted on and the whole caucus has a vote. This is one of those where the members are selected by the leadership. So in some respects, that structure means the possibility of partisanship is much greater when the leader alone gets to pick rather than having to build consensus across their caucus. But for many, many decades, at the beginning of the operation of the committee, the committee's functioning and the membership, they tended to be more towards the center than either of their two parties at large. Um, And they tended to seek a lot of consensus, even when they went forward into controversial things, Um, like even on the House side, the Iran-Contra hearings in the 80s, which Harvey may have some insights into. um, (laughs) They produced very thorough reports, and their view was that they had to convince people about what they were doing. Um, And so it performed a very important oversight function. The Senate committee, was. there were also concerns about it being 
politicized, but had, they appointed as the first chair of the committee Senator Inoue, who was a World War II veteran from Hawaii, passed away fairly recently, uh, who was also a consensus builder and managed to run that committee in a very thoughtful, collegial manner. And in fact, on the Senate committee, unlike having a chairman and a ranking member, which indicates the subordinate nature of the minority party, the chairman is the senior member of the majority party, but the vice chairman is the senior member of the minority party, and it's the vice chairman who governs in the chairman's absence. So there's this back and forth between the two parties, assuming that they have commonality of purpose on the Senate side, which you don't have on the House side. It's sort of interesting because the original members were Frank Church was the chair. Mm -hmm. It was Philip Hart, Walter Mondale, Walter Hutchinson, Robert Morgan, and Gary Hart. And the Republican side, it was John Tower, Howard Baker, Barry Goldwater, Charlie Mathias, and Richard Schweiker. Quite a many titans of the Senate. That's right. And some people who, you know, were at the time considered fairly partisan, had, you know, some pretty extreme views. But to your point about history repeating itself, I would note, and, and you, you mentioned this in the article that we're going to hyperlink in the notes to the cast here, which was excellent, by the way. That among the issues they were looking at was the wiretapping of, of journalists. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that also involved, um, at least on the Pike side, uh, the alleged illegal wiretapping by the FBI, which included the wiretapping of members of um, the Weather Underground, uh, attempts to kill foreign leaders. These issues are still um, very fresh, very That's real. Right. Yeah, and the committee actually um, revealed one of the first NSA bulk surveillance programs. Operation Shamrock, which was the first time that the government tried to go to the telecommunications companies and get all the data coming into the country then, and it was hugely controversial. It's part of what led to the first FISA, the wiretappings um, that occurred that they uncovered, and then this bulk collection program led to the first act, um, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which required the intelligence agencies to get warrants if they were seeking intelligence information on people inside the United States. So this committee in this report had far-reaching implications on our legal system going forward, right? The wiretapping of um, Martin Luther King Jr. and some of these journalists. It was just, it was really shocking what had gone on. Um, and it's part of why our intelligence agencies now have such strong, you know, such strongly believe in the principle that they do not operate inside the United States because this, these commissions, Church and Pike, uncovered a lot of active intelligence activities on the United States against the American people. And this was a real challenge, obviously, after 9-11, when we talked about the wall coming down, and these things had to be sort of relitigated again, at all levels of government. Um, uh, so I, I'd also like for you to talk a little bit about the internal rules that govern external communications on these committees, uh, because uh, this was very helpful for me to see and be reminded of um, in your piece. Yeah, so the Senate committee has very strong rules against discussing committee business outside. And if you ever look at the committee schedules, the Senate committee gives very little information about what they're doing on any given hearing. And they'll just say, discussing intelligence matters. And the House doesn't have those restrictions. They default to rules about classified information and what they're supposed to keep confidential. Uh, but they'll say things like intelligence manner, matters related to the Middle East, or, the, or they might say um, technical intelligence matters. They might give you some more indication of what is happening 
on the House side than you see on the Senate side. And so the Senate has always had this sort of more keep things behind the skiff door attitude than the House has had. But you also have to remember the history of the House and leaks is that the House has been much more aggressive about putting information out there, right? The Pentagon Papers, some of these things were read into the record in the House. Um, and so the House has a much stronger tradition on speech and debate about putting things in public interest out there into the public domain. At the time, many of these things were considered con controversial and damaging to national security. But in the sweep of history, people felt like those were very important things to discuss with the American people and put out and to question about the way that our government was operating. But I do think that these rules help mask whatever political differences in the Senate may be occurring behind closed doors. There may be actually far more partisan disagreement than we realize. Uh, and some of that started to leak out when you saw, for example, the Senate investigating the CIA's rendition detention interrogation programs. There were some hints of the fights that were happening behind closed doors, but you didn't see the same kind of open warfare even then that you see in the House side happening now between um, Chairman Nunes and Ranking Member Schiff and then the members down the dais, right, speaking about what's going on, complaining about procedural matters that the other side is um, allowing or not allowing. You just haven't seen this kind of open warfare in the committees, and I think it's exactly what Tip O'Neill was trying to say would never happen in this committee, um, what we're seeing happening today. Wow, that's pretty shocking. Now, another um, another thing that you raised, which I thought was really important, I think the public might imagine that the Senate Select Committee and the House Permanent Select Committee both have access to as much classified information as anyone in the intelligence community does. Therefore, any individual member, all members of their staff, they're possessing all the information available and rendering a decision in a way that is fully informed. But that may not be the case. That's right. Look, it's important to remember that these intelligence committees, they are less than 20 members of Congress who are paying attention to this less than full time, right? Maybe 15% of their time, if you're lucky, um, given all the other things they have to vote on and deal with. And then maybe between 20 and 40 staffers, depending on the size of the committee, who are focusing on these things full time. But this is a multi-billion dollar enterprise. Now, if you assume that intelligence functions, to not give away any classified information, to assume intelligence functions are roughly 10% of the national security enterprise, national security enterprise is about $600 billion. You're talking about 60 people doing oversight over $60 billion worth of intelligence programs. It's difficult. Are you suggesting that's a problem? <laughs> it's a little difficult uh, to stay on top of This is why we're using percentages. This Where's Waldo? <laughs> A ballpark figure. Ballpark <laughs> figures, right, to not give away any actual numbers, just to give people a sense of the magnitude of the enterprise. It's very hard for any group of people that small to really conduct oversight into the wide range of things. And the intelligence committees are disadvantaged compared to their other national security counterparts in the tools that they're able to use to conduct that oversight. One of the challenges they have is, right, in the military, for the Armed Services Committees, you see what the activities are, right? The Pentagon comes forward, they testify. You have 
public criticism of that. You have foreign countries weighing in. Um, in cases of contract disputes, you may have one company who loses come tell you something about what the other company did wrong. Um, you have all kinds of people criticizing, the services criticize each other, and it all plays out in ways, through, in part through the press, that members of Congress have many, many more sources to be able to get information on what's going on. Further, there are much more. In, there are many more internal oversight mechanisms on the Pentagon side, and the Armed Services Committees are much more likely to make use of the GAO, the General Accountability Office, to do the kinds of deep dives into budget oversight or programmatic oversight that the Intelligence Committees just don't do. So not only do you have a very small number of people dealing with a very large enterprise, they only have a fraction of the tools available to them that other committees have. So the risk that something is sneaking past them is really quite high. Well, in your political piece, which we've hyperlinked, you talk about an issue that's gotten quite a great deal of ink, which is the civility issue and how civility in political discourse yeah. has evolved. And we thought it would be helpful if you gave us a little sense of your <laughs> understanding of how this phenomena has evolved over time. Yeah, I... I feel like, you know, I came to the Hill sort of the end of the golden age of civility. My period, really. Right, right. Harvey, you probably speak to this much more, with much more experience than I can. Um, and I have to admit, the early days of the committee were not part, I'm not quite old enough to know those right. things. You're very young. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the chamber was much more collegial. I will also say that during the Cold War, as a nation, we had much greater commonality of purpose as to what the national security establishment should be doing and how we should be doing it. So there was far less to fight about. There were a few things, right? The Vietnam War was a very big piece of this, um, some of the intelligence activities which were dealt with with the Church Committee. Um, but it wasn't until the Iran-Contra scandal where Congress prohibited the Reagan administration from trying to interfere in um in governments in Latin America, and then that got caught up in a deal where the administration was trying to fund some of the um, counter-communist groups in exchange for getting weapons to the getting weapons to them, exchange for the release of the hostages in Iran, and it also got mixed up into one giant mess. Uh, the there were a number of linked covert operations. A number of linked covert <laughs> operations. That sort of, if you wrote it into like a tell into homeland you'd be like this is ridiculous like no one, <laughs> right. um like no one could follow this plot line no um, verisimilitude <laughs> but it's what happened but the committee was united in the sense that the executive branch was flouting the authority of congress to express what the limits were on national security and so even if people had different views about what exactly should be happening they understood on a bipartisan basis that this was congress's authority to prohibit the administration was blocking that, and so you have this interbranch conflict. That's very different than what's happened over time, where you know first you have an interbranch conflict about limits of, of power, and then moving forward, what you see is another period of commonality around 9/11, where the nation was united and we did not have much dispute over intelligence programs, even some of which which became much more controversial later on when they were revealed. Um, again, until the Iraq War, about which there was tremendous dispute as to whether or not the United States should be doing that. Um, and then you see another series of leaks coming forward. And over this period of time, the, the bipartisan spirit of the committee starts to break down. 
it was particularly bad shortly before I came to the House Intelligence Committee under Porter Goss as some of these uh, controversial intelligence programs, the rendition detention interrogation programs, um, some of the programs around drones and wiretapping came to light and it became much more contentious within the committee. The partisanship started to break down. Um, when the Democrats took control of Congress in the 2006 elections, Chairman Reyes made a real effort to try and restore the bipartisan nature of the committee to some success compared to what it was, but not complete success. And then later, um, when Congress changed back, Chairman Rogers, Mike Rogers of Michigan, really restored a period of real bipartisan cooperation, working with Dutch Ruppersberger from Maryland, who always likes to say that he represents the NSA. So on the House side, you sort of have this back and forth of how partisan it was. And then we see this real low in, in partisan cooperation now over um, the investigation into whether and how Russians tried to work with the Trump campaign to influence the election. And that investigation has become not only a partisan fight where the two sides take very different views, but one side is attacking the intelligence agencies themselves in this and their conduct of what was happening, um, which didn't even happen in the very contentious hearings around Benghazi, where there was a tremendous political fight happening, but largely there was agreement that the intelligence agencies in our national security community had done all that they could in this situation and that there were some recommendations for improving security, but it was not an attack on the actions of the of the community itself. And so what's happening now is a real shift. I think one of the interesting things you pointed out was during the Iran-Contra period, there was the famous minority report that was uh, penned while someone named Congressman uh, Cheney. <laughs> and I think the lawyer at the time was a gentleman named David Adler. And they, in that report, our listeners should see a very robust perspective on the power of the executive vis-a-vis -vis the Congress, which one starts to see in Bush 43 when uh, these gentlemen return and have a different perspective about what they see as executive power. Yes. I mean, these, these roots run deep, and it's good that yeah. we have people like Harvey around <laughs> who have the history. But it is true that... Um, a lot of the view on executive power was driven by Cheney and Addington in the post-9-11 period, and they were the ones who pushed very aggressive interpretations of president's powers to go to war, to expand surveillance authorities, to reinterpret our obligations under the Geneva Convention, and, and those activities, again, remain very controversial. We see them playing out in the fight over the current nominee to be the director of the CIA, um, which always makes the Senate committees much more relevant to any national security debate because they have the ability to approve or deny the appointment of any particular national security um, political appointee, which makes the lower-level people usually much more circumspect in their dealings with that committee for fear that they might not be confirmed when their time comes. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. This is the end of part one of our conversation with Mika Oyang, but join us again next week as we continue talking to her about congressional oversight of national security, as well as federal surveillance programs, and how Congress deals with classified information. You can find us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, 
or on our Facebook page, the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And remember, while we love to see you online, social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack. Thank you.